Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner. This episode of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, as you will soon notice, is different from our previous episodes. We're still a pretty new show, and as with all startups, there's a lot of experimentation along the way. So, based in part on what you've been telling us, we've tweaked some things with the format and other elements of the show. We think it's a big improvement, so let us know whether you agree or not. All feedback welcome, as always. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook at tmsidk.com, or if you want to send us an email, producer at tmsidk.com. And thanks, as always, for listening. Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find find out out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. (laughs) Because I want you to tell Tell me me something something I I don't know. Good evening, I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, and tonight we are coming to you from the drop-dead gorgeous Pantages Theater in Minneapolis. We have got an audience full of smart people, and we will invite them up one at a time to tell us anything that is interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. And if everything goes according to plan, we will all be a little bit smarter by the time we're through. Now, helping me out tonight... Please welcome our special guest, the writer and radio slash podcast host, Mr. John Moe. Hello, everyone. Hello, John. Hello, Stephen. Let's see what we know about you so far. We know that you've written a few books, a lot of journalism, and that you've done a ton of radio, most recently as host of the podcast, The Hilarious World of Depression, which recently won a Webby for Best Comedy Podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. John, we know you grew up near Seattle as the child of, as it says here, European theater folk. It's John Moe, a wordsmith with a theatrical bent. Tell us something we don't yet know about you. I was the lead singer of Seattle's leading chicken suit wearing rock band of the 1990s. (laughs) Um, I was the lead singer of a band called Free Range Chickens, which... uh, as with most creative enterprises, began as a joke and then got out of hand. Um, we came up with the name Free Range Chickens after seeing uh, some of the abundant organic food available in Seattle and actually mandated by law uh, for everybody to buy along with their Subaru Outbacks. And we became known as this band, you know, the, the Chicken Suit Band. It cleverly covered up uh, a lack of deep talent on our part. John Moe, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you. Very happy to have you here. Here's how it's going to work, John. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. You and I will hear them out. We'll ask some questions, and eventually we will all pick a winner. Victory will be based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? Now, to help with that demonstrably true part, please welcome... Our real-time fact-checker, Maggie Ryan Sanford. Maggie is a science writer, researcher, and producer. Her work has appeared in Slate, Smithsonian, on Comedy Central, NPR, and elsewhere. So Maggie, you are here to fact-check our audience experts. Is there some subject in which you happen to be a true expert, perhaps? I know way too much about dolphins. I once walked around uptown Minneapolis with a sandwich board that said... Ask me anything about dolphins. 
and people did. Most of what people want to know about dolphins is sex stuff. Well, mm. but, but let me ask you this. Do you come by your dolphin knowledge uh, professionally? No, I'm not a professional mm -hmm. dolphin expert. Can you explain to me in 10 seconds or less the difference between a dolphin and a porpoise? Yes, a porpoise has a, a smaller nose, different general body structure, and there are fewer species of them than dolphins. Um, it is time now to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. So would we all please welcome our first audience guest, Raka Mitra. <laughs> Raka, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? So I am a biology professor at Carleton College and an avid podcast fan. Well, you're in the right place if you're a podcast fan. Uh, I am ready. So are John Moe and Maggie Ryan Sanford. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Well, many of us think that having a drink in the evening is more socially acceptable than having a drink in the morning. Y yes, I think... We knew that part, yeah. But from a biological perspective, that might not be the best idea. So it turns out that the liver, which is important for detoxifying alcohol and drugs, uh, doesn't function as well at, at night than it does during the day. John Mo, it sounds like she's telling us that we should all be drinking in the morning. It's, time, that... <laughs> it's time for the AM ale is what I'm hearing. Uh. Is that where you're heading? I am not advocating Because day clearly drinking. we need to drink at some point. Correct. <laughs> and, and it's like it, breakfast. It's the most important drink of the day. <laughs> you get it done early, you move on with right. it. Right. So uh, we know this because of studies done a couple decades ago on mice. So there were some researchers in Korea that were studying uh, the effect of a high dose of acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, on mice. And they found, surprisingly, that when they gave the Tylenol to mice in the evening, at like eight at night, uh, the mice had liver toxicity. But in the morning or in the early afternoon, the livers were totally fine. Hmm. The reason for this is because uh, mice make a certain compound in their livers that's really important for detoxifying drugs, um, and they mainly make it at night. In the absence of this compound, there's this undetoxified drug around that uh, then starts attacking the cells of the liver. So you talk about the chemical in the mouse liver. Mm -hmm. Do we a do we have it? I yeah, mean, that's it's a very common right? chemical. It's called glutathione. It helps with things like uh, oxidative damage. Mm -hmm. And then B, if one were to start drinking in the morning, and someone were to ask that person why one is drinking in the morning. The, the most um, scholarly... It's because of the mice. Exactly. <laughs> so this has implications other than people who want to drink in the morning, plainly, right? Right, right. so there's the, there are implications on um, what's called chronotoxicity. So when people are given drugs, uh, we're not really paying that much attention right now to when they're given drugs, but it seems like we should uh, because our liver will process them differently at different times of day. Mm -hmm. I, so, but what are the similarities between acetaminophen and alcohol that right. makes this correlate? That's a great question. So acetaminophen is detoxified in a different way than alcohol, um, but they are both detoxified in the liver. And uh, the enzymes that are part of the detoxification process both show circadian rhythms. But what you're saying is that the way that we're set up rhythmically, circadian rhythmically, mm -hmm. is that it works better mm -hmm. at different times of the day, mostly earlier. Right. Wow. This is like the whole dinner lie, that we need to eat an, an enormous amount of food 
in the evening just before we you know go to sleep and can't metabolize it. This is why we we should eat something light for dinner and then you know have a a hearty breakfast, a complete breakfast, as mm. they say. Perhaps with Bloody Marys. Perhaps with Bloody Marys. <laughs> All right, so you've got this sort of starting to be figured out. Here's my question then. Mm-hmm. What do you do to kind of wake up your liver if you want to drink at night? Sure. Recently, there's been a paper that came out that showed that the microbes living in our gut also have circadian rhythms, and they can influence this liver toxicity. But if we can control them, then we should be able to have our liver work best when we most need a drink. Did this uh, research really come to be interesting to you, given that you work in a college and probably people are drinking at all sorts of times there? The legal Especially age for drinking Northfield? is 21. Well, that is true. Fact. It became interesting to me because I teach about microbes. And so I love all things microbes and recently have become really obsessed with gut microbes. This finally explains that expression I've always heard, Stephen, which is Tylenol in the morning, no liver warning, Tylenol at night, you won't feel all right. Maggie, um, I feel we've learned a great deal in a short time from Raka here about ourselves, our drinking, our livers. First of all, how, how legit is this, and do you have anything to add to it? I would say too legit to quit. And as much as I want to talk about circadian rhythms and gut microbes, I think we're all disappointed that we didn't talk a little bit more about drunk mice. So I just want to reassure everybody that there was a recent study that found that mice, when they get drunk, just like humans, get the munchies. Good to know. Raka Mitra, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. John, uh, do you think it will change uh, drinking, eating, uh, any kind of habits? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but it, it's funny the the shifting acceptability of that kind of thing. I worked in the tech industry for a while, and with the sales reps, like in the afternoon, they'd all come back from their various sales lunches, a couple mm-hmm. sheets to the wind, yeah. because it was very, you know, that's how deals got closed. Mm. But now that's, I don't think that's done at all anymore. Does anyone know where that phrase, three sheets to the wind for drunk, comes from? It's got to be sailors, right? I'm upset because I do know this, but I can't recall it at the moment. So I'll I'll get back to you on that. Okay, would you please welcome our next guest, Mr. Michael Corbett. Okay, Michael, uh, good evening. Tell us what you do. Sure. I'm a civil engineer and transportation planner with the Minnesota Department of Transportation. Michael, I think, um, I think everybody in the world is interested, frankly, in transportation, moving people around. What do you got? Uh, unlike most cities in the U.S., in downtown Minneapolis, uh, rental rates on the second level for retail is much higher than it is on the street level. And this is due to our extensive network of glass-enclosed walkways on the second level between buildings that we call the Skyway system. You do love your Skyway here, don't you? You're very proud of your Skyway. Most of us do. There is the criticism that it can take away from life on the street level, and there is a certain truth to that here and in other cities. And, Stephen, I think that, too, a lot of people, if they don't like the Skyway system, it's because they can't handle the idea of being sucked through a wormhole into a parallel dimension. And a a place where weather means nothing, where there are no streets, where there is no uh, magnetic orientation to where you're going, there are just some sandwich shops and long hallways, (laughs) and nothing means anything, and life has no consequence. I love the Skyway system. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, uh, John, these sandwich shops, et cetera, that you're talking about, I gather, Michael, that's what you're talking about, why second floor rents are higher here than first floor rents. That's really true? That is true. We talked to a number of private building owners and leasing people, and we looked at a bunch of retail leasing guides, and we did this whole smarty pants academic simulation model, and we found, in general, a 30 to 40% increase in value on the second level versus the street level. Hmm. Is the Skyway a public space, technically, the way a sidewalk is? Well, that's kind of interesting. The remarkable thing about this system is that it, it kind of grew organically. It, it started in the 60s when a developer connected the North Star building to a bank across the street. A few years later, the IDS Center, which is our tallest building, was built, and that had skyways in each direction. And from there, it really took off, and it's largely cooperation be, between private building owners and business developers, and they worked to create links between their buildings. So you're saying it wasn't centrally planned, the route of this, Right. That is correct. So would you say that it has evolved organically in a way that's as good or better than it would have evolved if it were planned centrally? So we actually modeled this. We used what was called an accessibility model. We determined, based on the square footage and the type of land use of each building, we figured, okay, for however many hundreds of thousands of square feet, this equates to... X number of job opportunities. And we kind of had a predictive travel time using an average walking speed of three and a half miles per hour between the buildings and said, okay, based on how the system started, would they connect to an area that had sort of the next highest accessibility? And when we did this, this model, we found that, yeah, over time, that's primarily what happened. So I, I have a question. The, the property on the second floor on in the skyway going for twice as much as on street level now of course it does get cold here in the winter god tries to kill you every year <laughs> but there's other times of year where minnesota is delightful and and you love walking around on the street um how it like are people so conditioned to seek the skyway regardless of the weather that they go up there or is is that just a more accessible place for people as opposed to cars and buses? That's not entirely the case. There's actually a person that, for a living, he does pedestrian counts and pedestrian studies and found that some of the links have 20,000 people a day using them. But he also found that for every 10-degree increase in the outdoor temperature, that skyway volumes drop by 10 or 20%. Mm. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine you're the only town with a skyway. What can you tell us about others and whether how yours compares? So Minneapolis Skyway System is actually the largest continuous or contiguous system. Calgary has their plus 15 system for being 15 feet above the ground. Theirs is actually larger, but it's not fully connected. There's a bunch of sort of disjointed segments. Mm-hmm. John, you live in um, St. Paul. Does St. Paul have its own Skyway? It does. It's a little like a lot of things are between St. Paul and Minneapolis. It's, it's smaller. It's uh, like St. Paul is Minneapolis's bookish older sister. <laughs> So it's a little more, a little more uh, quaint and a, a few more skyways that just sort of go into to walls for no reason. Uh, I, I seem to recall having heard that Atlanta has a skyway. That's correct. And that one's come under some criticism because 
it generally connects a couple of the nice, nicer hotels to a nearby convention center. Um, the Atlanta system has actually been given a derogatory term. Well, let's I, hear that, please. Honky tubes. Honky tubes. <laughs> You're kidding. Uh, Maggie, um, honky tubes and much more we're learning about. Um, what more can you tell us? Well, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention the replacement song, Skyway, because the replacements are from Minneapolis. You had asked an interesting question about whether the Skyways are a public space. Now, there isn't a lot of literature about this, but I actually um, conducted my own experiment with a friend of mine who's a sidewalk expert. We wanted to know if you could picnic in the Skyway in Minneapolis. So we tried it. Uh, we set a timer, and we got kicked out in 25 minutes. So don't picnic in the Skyway. Wow. If you didn't know, now you know. Michael Corbett, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. It's an interesting town, John Moe, where you live. It, it really is. I, yeah. I love that there's part of the system that they just haven't figured out <laughs> who's in charge. Let's please welcome to the stage our next guest, Duchess Harris. Hi there, Duchess. How are you? I'm great. And Duchess, what do you do? I am the chair of the American Studies Department at McAllister College. Very good. And I have written a book called Hidden Human Computers, The Black Women of NASA. My maternal grandmother was one of the original hidden figures. And what I'm going to say is that once people saw the movie Hidden Figures, they would tell me that black women first started working at NASA during the civil rights movement. And what I'd like to share that some people don't know is that black women actually first started working at NASA in 1943. No kidding. Now, yeah. there was a NASA in 1943? It was officially called NACA. All right, so let's hear what you have to say. Okay, so there are two important things that happened during World War II that are related to NASA. So during this time period, it makes all the sense in the world that almost all the employees would have been white men, and they go off during the war. The other thing that happens is that FDR desegregates federal jobs. And originally, NACA does not want to desegregate, and they want to hire white women to do this work. Mm. It just so happens that there aren't enough white women in Virginia that have four-year degrees at this time to do the work, and so what they do is go over to a local historically black college and find black women from there. And your grandmother was among them. Yeah, she was fortunate enough to go to Talladega College in Alabama. She ends up getting a four-year degree in chemistry. Mm. It isn't until she's 36 years old and she has three kids that the people from NACA said, are there enough colored girls, Mm. right, who can pass the civil service exam? She and 10 other women did that, and that's where the story begins. Wow, and what kind of work did she do then for NACA or when it became NASA? So what she did was check the math of the engineers. Women weren't allowed to be engineers. And what projects did she work on then? She actually worked on Friendship 7. Um, The biggest challenge that they had wasn't the calculations to actually get out of space. It was the return. Mm. So the big fear was that they would be off somewhat and not end up returning safely. We're often (laughs) told that, you know, NASA sent people to the moon with less computing power, basically, than we're walking around with a smartphone. So can you talk for a minute about what 
computing power actually was back then? Sure. So what you get in the early 1960s is the creation of the IBM computer. Um, and they actually were the size of rooms. And so astronauts like John Glenn were concerned about trusting the judgment of the machine. And so what they wanted was people who were using pencil and paper, actually, to do the numbers as far out as they could possibly get. So you wrote a book mm-hmm. about this, which includes your grandmother, who predated the civil rights era yeah. integration story mm-hmm. that we've kind of been hearing about. Well, my grandmother worked with all of the women who are featured in the movie. Um, the difference is that she got there 10 years before those women. And so um, segregation is such in the South that if you think about it, Brown versus Board of Education doesn't happen until 54. And so she's there 11 years before it's actually legal to be in these public spaces. And so she's working in a building that's actually miles from where the white women are doing computing. She is housed over in the West area of NASA Langley, and she's eating at her desk for the first decade. And it isn't until they reconfigure some of the buildings that she's allowed to eat in the colored dining room for like the next five years. And then eventually they desegregate NASA. So interesting. Maggie, um, hidden computer figures, the earlier hidden figures, maybe we'd call it. What more can you tell us? All of this talk reminded me of a certain poem or song by Gil Scott Heron called Whitey's on the Moon. What yeah. can you tell me about that song? Sure. Gil Scott Heron was a spoken word artist who passed away recently, um, famous for the line, um, the revolution will not be televised. And when we got to the moon in 1969, um, there were black people who felt left out of this space project, mainly because it was geographical. All of um, the NASA locations were in the South. Um, and also people who had the privilege and the access to go to historically black colleges. So people like Gil Scott Heron, who were northern urban, um, who were blue collar, who didn't have four-year degrees, um, felt alienated by this. And so he wrote a song that um, talked about his tax dollars paying for Whitey to go on the moon and that there was no benefit for him. If we want to, I think we could listen to a little bit of Whitey's on the moon. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. Maggie, thank you. And thank you, Duchess Harris, for telling us something we did not know. That is some good stuff. Uh, It is time now for a very quick break. When we return, more guests from our audience will make John Moe tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend one, would you please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our special guest tonight is John Moe, host of The Hilarious World of Depression. Before we get back to our audience presenters, let's put John on the spot with some lightning round questions we've written just for you, John. Oh, boy. You ready? Yes. All right, first of all, what is so funny about depression? 
it is an irrational little monkey that lives inside your head and controls things, and that sounds like the plot of a delightful movie from 1978. Uh, you, John, have been in public radio for a long time. If public radio were a person and you were writing its online dating profile, <laughs> what would you write? Um, I, I would say that uh, I enjoy hip-hop music, but mostly uh, lengthy discursive deconstructions of it. <laughs> and I need your support. Please pick up the phone and call. Don, I know you've lived in the Twin Cities almost for a decade now, um, so you should be able to answer some local trivia for us first. Uh, I know that St. Paul was once called, quote, another Siberia, unfit for human habitation. To which St. Paul responded by doing what? Uh, starting the uh, Winter Carnival. Very good. True or false, Minneapolis was also home to the world's first internet cat video festival. Oh yeah, that's true. John Moe, which apple was invented and named by the University of Minnesota? Uh, the Honeycrisp. Very good. And finally, uh, John Moe, the state of Minnesota is home to 17 Fortune 500 companies. These include United Health Group, the largest health insurer in the U.S., as well as Hormel, maker of spam. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> no, no, it is not a coincidence at all. John Moe, well done. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, time now to get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next guest, John Anfinson. Hello, John. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? So I am the superintendent of the Mississippi National River and Recreation Area, one of the 417 units of the National Park Service in the United States. Well, that sounds like a great topic to learn something we don't know. What do you have for us tonight? So... I hope some of you know that the only major waterfall in the Mississippi is in Minneapolis, St. Anthony Falls. And Minneapolis actually stole that waterfall from St. Paul. Wait a minute. You mean the border moved? The falls moved upstream 15 miles over the last 12 years. It started in St. Paul. Over the last 12 years? 12,000 years. Oh, you left out the little <laughs> thousand yeah, there. 12,000 years. That's because of the river. That's really are, fast in geologic time, isn't it? It's very fast because the river's got this really fragile bed to it, or the falls float over a bed of limestone and then some shale, and then have this really, really soft sandstone that you could scratch it with your fingers and it falls apart. So it's eroded very fast upstream. Uh, and what about now? Is it still eroding, or has this situation been uh, solidified? It's been solidified. So in the mid 1800s. Millers begin harnessing the power of St. Anthony Falls. Initially, put their mills right on top of the limestone, but they got this idea that if they dug down through the riverbed, they could get more power. And this one miller had the idea, well, what if I tunnel underneath the falls to this island I bought upstream and build a mill, then I can get more power? Well, it was a great idea, but what happened was, as he got underneath the riverbed and tunneled it out, the falls collapsed into the river. The riverbed above the falls collapsed and it started to deteriorate. So the Corps of Engineers came in, and they built a dam or a wall underneath the Mississippi River at St. Anthony, 36 feet deep across the entire river. And that dam kept the rest of the falls from deteriorating and going away and stopped the geologic clock mm. in place. That was what year? 
1874 to 1876, that wall was built by hand. Is it still a power source or is it decorative at this point? It is a power source in a different economic sense. Okay. It is now, historically, that falls is responsible for um, General Mills, Pillsbury, Gold Medal Flower, and Betty Crocker. And so these great national, international names come because of the power that falls. They're gone now and in different places. But in the last uh, 15, 20 years, there's been over a billion dollars of economic development around the falls because of its aesthetic character. So when I uh, frequently walk my dog down along the river by uh, Crosby Farm in St. Paul, uh, what efforts are being made to kill every single mosquito? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, John, this is uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, Maggie, I think we'll call this one Don't Go Changing Waterfalls. Um, Can you tell (laughs) us uh, anything about the factuality and anything else you want to add? Well, it sounds pretty good. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, most of the literature uh, on this subject is written by one Mr. John Anfinson. Oh. So, oh. <laughs> lucky us. That does um, remind me, though, that you were talking about mills, and it turns out that the term three sheets to the wind is actually a miller's term. It comes from windmills, which are supposed to have four sheets. And if the miller forgets one of them, the windmill starts shaking and stumbling like a drunk person. Oh, I did not Three know that, and I'm happy to. You have Thanks, told me Maggie. something I did not know. That's my job. Nice, nicely done. And John Anfinson, nicely done. Thanks so much Thank for playing. Great job. So, um, John Moe, you're familiar with this river of which... He spoke the Mississippi. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You interact with it on a regular basis. I really do. It's the spine of the country, but it's really a, a huge feature of the of the Twin Cities. And I mean, I make a lot of jokes, but every time I have occasion to drive across the Mississippi River, I can't believe that mm. I get to live here, right where the Mississippi is uh, thriving. I mean, it's it's huge. It's like uh, you know, like the Catholic Church or the Communist Party. There's beautiful parts and not so beautiful parts. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, would you please welcome our next guest, Isabella Soparker. Hi there, Isabella. Hello. Uh, tell us about yourself, please. I'm a senior at McAllister College, majoring in environmental studies with an emphasis in climate science and policy. And uh, do you know yet what you uh, hope to do or plan to do? So I have a job with Meridian Institute. It's an environmental policy group in D.C. All right, what do you have to tell us tonight? Recent polling data shows that the majority of people in America believe in climate change, even across political parties, but it also shows that American women are more concerned about climate change than men are. And usually when you see a gap in public opinion on an issue, you find that that gap carries over into the political legislature. But when I did statistical analysis on congressional voting records on climate change, I didn't find that female legislators are more concerned than male legislators. So you're saying that if you take another issue that women care about differently than men in the public, you'd see the same split, essentially, in legislatures. It's usually a little bit smaller, but it's usually there. So if you think about gun control or abortion or... Uh, women's health care. Those are all examples of issues like that. So I interviewed some very kind Minnesota legislators. And the first thing was that whenever I said the words climate change to a Republican legislator, we kind of hit a roadblock. Um, However, I found that when I stopped saying climate change and started talking about climate solutions as environmental solutions, so for example, talking about renewable energy reducing air pollution, female Republicans were way more willing when I reframed it as an environmental problem to talk to me about climate solutions 
than their male colleagues were. Hmm. And so my preliminary results show that if we start reframing how we talk about climate solutions, we might be able to take advantage of this climate gender gap to actually make some real policy action. Define climate solutions. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, so it's things like policy that supports renewable energy, also policy that encourages us to cut back on greenhouse gases in general, which are all things that we're kind of struggling with as a country right now. So you lead with the solutions, you don't lead with the problems. Lead with the solutions and maybe even stop talking about climate change. Start talking about um, environmental issues, public health, national security. But you were saying that when, um, when you flip it a little bit and female legislators would then revert to essentially the proportion of females in the public, right, who would feel concerned about climate change. But men still didn't, like if you're talking about stopping pollution, right, that's what you're saying. So could it just be somehow that men really like pollution, that they're not anti-climate climate science, they're just, they love soot? It's possible. I mean, maybe you can tell me. But um, <laughs> if you look at the a psychology literature, the environmental gender gap is actually bigger than the climate change gender gap. So if you talk about environmental issues that aren't climate change, the difference between men and women is a lot larger. Um, Maggie, what more can you tell us about the, the disappearing gender gap between the public and legislatures on this issue and or any other issues. So anything you can add there would be great. Well, there's actually a different gap related to climate change that I think is really important, which is that the percentage of people who disbelieve in climate change is actually lower than what people think it is. Indeed, most people believe in climate change, but the percentage of people who think that other people don't think that climate change is real is higher than the actual reality. Really interesting. Thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know, Isabella. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Jenny Chen. Hey, Jenny. Uh, what do you do here? I am a social psychologist that does data analytics for Target. And um, as a hobby, I train, show, and handle performance dogs. And I also help select dogs for training programs, oh, like surf dog work. what a life. I love it. I just, dogs are the best, aren't they? So they much better are, than people. They are. They're wonderful. Okay, so tell us something we don't know about, I guess, dogs, training dogs? Sure. So many people come to me and they'll have a puppy and they say, I'm going to wait until my puppy is full grown and better to start training. What I'm here to tell you from a neurological perspective is that there is a critical period, so up to 16 weeks where you need to do socialization for the dog. Mm -hmm. You want to expose them to new things so they learn that new things are fun, they're interesting, and they learn how to cope. You have to get acclimated to the world and yes. sensory interruptions or whatever yes. early, or you'll be kind of timid or freaked out or whatever. Is that the idea of what a dog will become? It is, because, I mean, you think about it. Dogs are animals, and, you know, they're in this world with these humans that don't behave like them. We don't sniff each other's butts most of the time. We don't have the same kind of fun they have. And so they are different. We behave differently. Like, you know, for us, fun is playing on your iPhone. And they're like, well, that's really boring, yeah. you know. Um, speaking of the sniffing, um, talk for a minute about dogs experiencing the world through their nose, right? What does that really mean? How, how much of their sensory perception is really coming through sniffing? Well, it can really depend on breed. So when you have like bloodhounds and beagles and breeds that are specifically bred to do those particular actions, they were very nose-driven. So those breeds, you put them in a yard, they're going to sniff the sniff. My breed, however, very human-oriented, 
They don't run away, and they don't really use their noses. Like I've done. Really? What's your breed? uh, I have greater Swiss mountain dogs. So, I have a question about the the idea that you can't teach a dog new tricks. Of course you can. Don't be dumb, right? You are absolutely correct. So when I do my foundation training with my puppies, I actually don't teach them tricks. What I do is I teach them coping mechanisms. I teach, you know, some types of behaviors that I want, like creativity. So we also do the same type of work that dolphins actually do. So we have what's called box work. You basically give a dog a box and anything creative that the dog does with the box, you start clicking and treating and praising. So they learn to be creative and learn how to solve problems. Wait, what does dog creativity look like? <laughs> anything they do. So I trained my dog to, uh, the command was washing machine in the end. And basically she went in the box. I treated her, gave her praise. She kept going in and spinning around. I just stuck a word to it. Washing machine. So tell her washing machine. She's why, why do that to a dog other than that it's funny? <laughs> um, so whenever I do training with my dogs, sometimes the um, situations can get kind of stressful, especially if you're like doing a, a, a water rescue or something and the dog can't quite get the person. It is stressful for those dogs. So you teach them little tricks that they can do ah. consistently so that they can feel good about it and get confidence back. Do you train dogs to do water rescue? I do. In fact, I have the only greater Swiss mountain dogs in the world that I know of that are water rescue dogs. You're kidding. How does that work? So um, the breed that is best known for doing water rescues are the Newfies. And what it is is a series of fetches. I'm going to fetch a person from the water, fetch a boat, and it also includes fetching underwater. Um, One of the more advanced exercises is that what they want is the dog to be naturally walking along the beach. They see someone flip over in the boat, and your dog is supposed to go under the boat, fetch the person now. And what my dog does, he went under the boat, got the person, and then got the boat and towed them both in. Oh, my goodness. How, how strong is a dog per pound or whatever compared to people? Very strong. We are so weak, it's not even funny. Hmm. <laughs> you mean just we, the people on stage, or? Uh... Well... <laughs> um, In general, I could probably save one person if the person wasn't flailing too much and freaking out. But my adult, Swissy, he was about 130 pounds at the time. He could tow in three adults. And I have a little dog, Louvhen, and she was 14 pounds and she could pull in an adult. You're kidding. No. How? I mean, when you say tow in, do I have to wrap myself around the dog? How does that work? um, Generally, you will hang on. If they have long coat, you would hang on to the coat. Or if they're wearing a vest, you hang on to the vest. Or if they're towing a line, you grab the line. Um... Can you train any breed to be a kind of useful service dog, or are there some breeds that are just useless? So it really depends on what kind of work. So in a service dog, we're really looking for a breed that is has high affinity towards humans. Because if you're ha- needing a dog to alert you to seizures, you need one to wake up and be like, hey, by the way, you're going to have a seizure, wake up. Um, whereas some breeds are pretty aloof, like the livestock guardian breeds, um, like a great peer, Anatolian shepherds. They want to be left alone with their flock. So many interesting things about what dogs can do and what you can do with dogs. Yeah, yes. uh, Maggie, anything to add there or challenge? I have uh, very little to argue with. I do want to talk about other things that dogs sniff, Mm -hmm. um, such as (laughs) cadavers. Yes. The way that they train cadaver-sniffing dogs is they made up a synthetic chemical that mimics chemically the smell of cadavers, so you don't actually have to have a fresh cadaver for every cadaver dog you're training. Is that 
Is that right in your experience um, as well? Most of the teams I know, if, if you have like hip replacement or your wisdom teeth out, you can donate those parts in America. At, at least at the time when I was doing more of that in other countries, they're like, you can't do that. You can't use body parts. This got really dark. <laughs> Jenny Chen, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. <laughs> John, did you feel you learned some dog stuff there or not I, so much? I learned some dog stuff. I, I have two dogs at home. I have a black lab pointer mutt who is very active and will do anything to please humans. And then we have another dog, Dave, who's nine. And Dave just uh, is, is barely uh, a dog at all. We think he might be a cat trapped in the wrong body. And would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Sydney Smith. Hi there, Sydney. Uh, what do you do? So I am an administrative director and assistant professor of health systems engineering at Mayo Clinic. So what do you have? Okay, so we've had a lot of talk lately about healthcare reform. We have an employer-based healthcare system. And how did we get to where we are in healthcare? It actually has a lot to do with Hitler. <laughs> Back in World War II, um, we had this shortage of labor. And so employers were battling for talent. And they actually were battling so much that we had a crisis on our hands. And so nationally, we actually froze wages and so healthcare benefits became the way that we incentivized people to come work for our organizations. That is so, you know, I've always heard that one of the biggest problems of American healthcare is that it is tied to labor. Yes. Because, you know, your job doesn't take care of your home insurance, or your auto insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And is America the only country that has significant ties between healthcare and employment? There are other countries that have um, different ways that they've tied it. So, not to always turn to Germany, but they have sickness funds that your employer must pay into a much larger fund. So it's not based just on that um, individual employer. It's more of a, a group fund. But the larger fund is essentially a government fund, yes, in the end? It, it's, a, it's a private partnership. Do you know why it, the, the idea of single-payer or, or something approximating single-payer healthcare was catching on everywhere else, but here it just didn't? So we'd have a um, background in employment-based payers. So hospitals were getting payments as people got sick, but sick people don't work as well as healthy people do. So if we could get those payments up front. Um, so they actually approached a teacher's union, um, and that's what started Blue Cross. And then Blue Shield was the um, provider side of that. I know that um, some economists talk about job lock, which is you know people who don't want to do something different or move or take a different job because they don't want to lose their current health care. Do you know anything about that? And how, is it truly, you know, a damper on the economy or people's lives? It definitely could be. So there's the other phrase of golden handcuffs, right? That I'm just in too good of a position to take a risk. Um, my generation, millennials, are the first where now that you can get on your parents' insurance up to 26, you can make a lot of choices earlier. Sydney Smith, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Um, great stuff tonight. Can we give one more hand to all our guest presenters tonight? When we return, we will talk about everything we've learned tonight, and yes, we will pick a winner. That is right after this break. Welcome back. We are coming to you from Minneapolis tonight. It is time now to pick a winner. 
Our live audience will have the final vote, but before we turn it over to them, the three of us, my co-host John Moe, our fact checker Maggie Ryan Sanford, and me, Stephen Dubner, we will each weigh in. Now, remember the three criteria for Tell Me Something I Don't Know are, did they tell us something we truly didn't know? Was it worth knowing? And was it demonstrably true? So John, why don't you uh, handle the first category of everything we've heard tonight? What's your favorite, basically, in terms of something you truly did not know? I'm kind of leaning towards Duchess, talking about the pre-NASA program that started as early as 1943. I enjoyed it because I started imagining wooden rockets going mm. to the moon. Um, <laughs> and, and the work that was being done, uh, not just by your grandmother, but by all the people in those organizations at that time, how that shaped history, how it was shaped by history. There was a whole lot that I didn't know. Yeah, that was great. John, thank you so much. I'll take the next criterion. Who told us something tonight that was really worth knowing? Honestly, I, uh, I didn't feel a single thing was really trivial. Um, I'm very happy to know that I can drink in the morning. I was really interested to know about the origin of the American connection between uh, employment and healthcare. And I'll tell you, I'm not a big science or geology or nature guy, but my vote might go to John Anfinson about the waterfall eroding, and not just because it's a neat geological fact, but because I kind of love the idea that, you know, man's relationship with nature is kind of weird, and we worry about it. And in this case, there was something happening mostly by nature, some by our intervention, and then um, we fixed the problem in a way that made it work for humankind and made it work for the river and for nature. So thanks, John Anfinson. And Maggie, Maggie Ryan Sanford, uh, what's your favorite based on outright factuality? I'm just going to go NASA ladies because she had a bunch of knowledge and uh, who doesn't want to hear more from her? Good call, Maggie. Thank you much. All right. Audience, you've heard from us, but we don't pick the winner. You do, and now it's time to do that. So, who will it be? Sydney Smith with Hitler Care, Jenny Chen with Dogs to the Rescue, Isabella Parker with the Climate Gender Gap, John Anfinson with Don't Go Changing Waterfalls, Duchess Harris with the earlier Hidden Figures, Michael Corbett with My Way or the Skyway, we'll call that, or... Raka Mitra with Why You Should Drink in the Morning. Please take out your phones, follow the texting instructions on the screen. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, would you please spread the word? Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks so much to all our guest presenters. Our winner tonight... Raka Mitra with Why You Should Drink in the Morning. Congratulations. And to commemorate your victory, Raka, uh, we'd like to present you with this Certificate of Impressive Knowledge, which reads, in full, I, Stephen Dubner, in collaboration with John Moe and Maggie Ryan Sanford, do verily acknowledge that Raka Mitra came on stage and told us all something we don't know for which we are eternally grateful. That's our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know. Huge thanks to John Moe, Maggie Ryan Sanford, to all our presenters, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. I know, I know.
Next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know, a very Freakonomical episode for you, a bunch of whip-smart academics talking about behavior change. We're joined by Angela Duckworth, the Penn psychologist and author of Grit. In 30 seconds or less, how can someone get grittier? Grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. It takes more than 30 seconds. (laughs) That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>